Good morning to everyone. And thank you for that, Katie. And that lends well to some of the scripture we're going to talk about today, about praising and giving thanksgiving and worshiping God. And we'll see that in some of the uh, later in the feasts and the festivals. Well, my name's Bev Tiefel, if you don't know me, and I have taught previously, and I'm happy to be here and doing so again. So let's pray to begin our morning. Father God, I just ask that you come and quiet our hearts and just open our minds and our ears to hear your word and what you want us to learn from that today. I thank you for each one here, and I just pray your blessings upon this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so as I thought about this passage that we're going to be talking about, um, I actually thought we need to kind of go back and set the stage a bit. Let's do a little bit of review. We came back last week after being off for a month, I believe. So let's just think again about the setting in the book of Deuteronomy and about what has happened and yet what's going to occur is we are halfway through this book. Remember that this was a new nation, the nation of Israel, and they're poised on the east side of the Jordan River waiting to cross over into the promised land. Remember, they had already conquered the nations on the east side of the river, and that portion of land was already divided among the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The whole book of Deuteronomy is really about preparation of the Israelite people by Moses through a series of speeches that take place over approximately one month's time. They needed preparation for life in the promised land as a community, as a unique people. And they were going to be without the leadership of Moses because as we already know, Moses has been told by God he was not going over with them. So through those first 11 chapters, Moses reiterates the history of the Israelites from the time they were redeemed from Egypt, wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're ready to enter the land of milk and honey. And along with that history, remember, Moses reminded them of the covenant with the Lord your God and the commandments he gave to them. Remember that this people who were once slaves in Egypt, did not know how to be a nation who lived together in community with the focus on obeying the one true God. So through Moses, God directed them on how they should live and interact with each other, as well as to obey him for their own good. Remember in chapter 5, Moses stated the Ten Commandments once again, as they had been given on the stone tablets. And now in this section, starting actually in chapter 12, Moses starts expanding on the meaning and the intent of those Ten Commandments with practical applications. Last week in chapters 12 through 14, which Don covered very well, and if you haven't listened to that, I advise you to get online or get a CD, but in those chapters, Moses speaks to the Israelites concerning proper worship, the place, the sacrifices, the tribute brought, 
which if you go back, it reiterates in an expanded way the first two commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Remember, they were told they were to worship at the place where the Lord God chose and where he put his name. And the instructions to them were to utterly destroy all the pagan forms of worship currently in the land and beware of false prophets. Moses reminded them once again of their identity. You are the sons of the Lord your God. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. So with all that background, today let's move on to chapters 15 and 16, which actually expands on the fourth commandment, which is observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And in Deuteronomy 5, Moses added, Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Every aspect of Israel's life is to reflect that the people belong to the Lord and are sustained by his hand. The weekly pattern of work and rest is to be a regular and essential part of this. Remembering the Sabbath by keeping it holy is integral to Israel's life as the people who are sanctified by the Lord. So in chapter 15, we come to the sabbatical year. I know in some of your Bibles, that's the title. Some other translations, it may not be. But the sabbatical year. And it, there again is an expansion of the Sabbath. But what is the sabbatical year? You'll note it doesn't really describe in our text what that is. So to find more details, we look to Exodus 23, verses 10 through 12, which says... For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. And there's more detail in Leviticus 25, 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years you shall, you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land." The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you. 
and for your cattle and the wild animals that, in your, that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So every seventh year is the sabbatical year, and no agricultural activities should be engaged in. The land needs rest, as well as the servants and the animals. So the Israelites may work the land for six years, but there is to be no organized farming in the seventh year. This practice is clearly a benefit to the soil, but it is also a recognition that all produce belongs to God and that he bestows it freely on his people. And note what else these verses say, that the poor may eat and the beasts of the field. The land is to provide, or the Lord will provide food for all concerned. So with that background, let's look now at chapter 15, verses 1 through 11. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it, exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you and for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor, in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I com command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. So in these verses, and even going back to the last two verses in chapter 14, verses 28 and 29, we see the compassion or the heart of God towards the poor, to the fatherless, to the widow, to those who reside in the community. And in 15.2, let's note who the debt release is directed towards. It says it's the neighbor or the brother this tells us there were going to be instances where one person or a brother in the community was going to be in need and they were going to have to borrow something of value from another. And they know going into this land, the economic system was going to be agriculturally based. 
So if the land was going to be fallow every seventh year, there would be no extra income. Perhaps only enough to sustain them. There wouldn't be any extra to pay back their debt. Plus, the year of release is declared so as to not burden that debtor further. And note the promise to them throughout these verses. It's repeated over and over. The Lord will bless you in the land. The Lord will bless you in all the work of your hands. The Lord will bless you. And the condition, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment. The fundamental meaning of lending is the extension of provision and generosity to someone in need. The meaning of borrowing is dependence and neediness. Proverbs 19.17 highlights this meaning. He who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward him for what he has done. I think that's important. He who is kind lends to the poor, lends to the Lord. The Lord will reward him. The ability to lend to others came from the Lord's abundant material blessings to Israel. The ability to lend signified God's favor on individuals and the nations as a whole. Because the Lord is a compassionate God, he causes people to imitate the compassion and mercy he has shown them. Chapter 15, it says, Do not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Open your hand and lend sufficient for his need. You give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging. Remember the image? The Lord God delivered the Israelites from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. What an image. I think open hand, closed fist. God gave to us generously with open hands. Because of his great generosity and heart, the Israelites are to imitate that generosity. This compassion and mercy was another signifying mark that the Israelites were different from all the other peoples. They had been sanctified by the Lord God. And if they had truly obeyed this command, there would have been no poor in the land. Unfortunately, we know the rest of the story, right? They didn't wholly obey because even Jesus himself quoted verse 11 out of Deuteronomy. And he said, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. And Jesus also addressed this heart attitude of generosity. Jesus said, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Lend without expecting to get anything back. And John also addressed this hard attitude. This verse was in your lesson today in 1 John 3, 17 through 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. 
The manner in which people lend is one of the characteristics that define them as righteous or unrighteous. Obedience toward God inevitably issues in generosity toward one's neighbors. Just as the Lord God would provide for the Israelites, the Lord will provide for those who give generously to brothers in need. And we read in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food. Will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Because of God's great generosity and heart, we as believers in Christ are also to imitate that generosity. God never fails to respond in blessing to a happy and generous giver. Just like the Israelites, generosity and mercy is to be a distinguishing mark or a characteristic of all those who are in Christ. Our generosity to others is to be motivated by God's grace to us. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 records, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So how do, how do we, how do you, we, I, how do I approach needs? Do I approach him with an open hand or a grudging heart and a closed fist? Do we fail to trust God for his provision If we share with others, do we think we won't have enough? But he promises that he's going to bless us if we're generous with others. And we see this attitude of generosity continued in verses 12 through 18. It says, if your brother, a Hebrew man or Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, You shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. 
Now note once again, this is addressing a brother, a Hebrew who is a slave. There were different rules for those of foreign people. But this is a Hebrew brother. They're to work only for six years and then they must be released and to be provided well upon that release. They were to remember. How many times have we been saying that word throughout this book, right? Remember. Remember that they had once been slaves in Egypt and the Lord redeemed them and he provided for them all that they needed. So then are they to release a brother from slavery providing all that they needed, giving them the ability to succeed on their own and not fall back into slavery out of need. They were given a second chance. Isn't that what the Lord gives us when he rescues us from the slavery of sin? A second chance, a redeemed soul with the help of the Holy Spirit and God's word to help us succeed as a reborn child of the Most High God. What generosity and mercy God shows to us. What a great picture of grace. And as the next section goes into the feast, the last verses of chapter 15 address the importance of setting aside the firstborn males of the herds and the flocks to dedicate to the Lord. Again, this was to be a normal part of their life, to dedicate these animals in preparation for sacrifice and offerings to the Lord. So then we come to chapter 16, which addresses three annual feasts, which again is a continuation of the discussion of the Sabbath, because they are observances before the Lord God and they require sacrifices, a day of assembly, praise, and thanksgiving. These three feasts in each case preserve something old that they're familiar with and also introduce something new. The Israelites are a worshiping community. It's a reality that extends to every area of their life, but most clearly seen in the ceremonies by which they worship God. So the first ceremony listed is Passover. Passover was held in the month of Abib, and that later was changed to call, be called Nisan, which translates to March and April on our calendar. There is a chart in the back of your binders if you want to see how the Hebrew calendar and our calendar line up and what, when the feasts are held. But Passover, which we're probably all more familiar with, is a continuing commemoration of the exodus from Egypt as a past event. The future is anticipated in that it now is going to be held in the place that the Lord will choose. Remember in Egypt, the family celebrated Passover in their homes as the angel of death passed over the homes where the blood was on the doorposts the blood of the lamb. Now, Passover would be a celebration, a commemoration of the event on which the covenant community of God was established. The Passover was a celebration of freedom, but at the same time, it was a reminder that freedom from Egypt 
and worldly domination had been exchanged for a new commitment as covenant people of God. In the forming of the covenant at Mount Sinai, Israel then became a single nation, the family of God, no longer individual families, but one family of God. Thus, Passover became the act of one large family of God celebrating in one place where the sanctuary of God was located. So now, this required travel, right? They had to make a pilgrimage to the place where the Lord God had chosen. So they were celebrating the past, but it was something new. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread followed directly after Passover for the next six days. The unleavened bread symbolized the hurried nature of the flight from Egypt, as it can be made quickly, but it can also be seen as a sign of purity. Leaven can decay quickly, and and it can cause impurities because of that. So, therefore... Leaven was to be purged from the land during this week of celebration to cleanse the land of impurity. In chapter 16, verse 8, there's the reference to the Sabbath. It says, for six days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. Now, for the first Passover, once they get into the promised land, is recorded in Joshua 5.10. It records that once they had celebrated the Passover there, they actually were able to eat of the produce of the land as they celebrated this feast. And it also says that the manna that the Lord had provided for them through all those days in the wilderness immediately ceased because it was no longer needed for their sustenance. So the next festival or feast is the Feast of Weeks, or it's called the Feast of the Harvest, or the Day of First Fruits. It's referred to all of those. And it occurs seven weeks or 50 days after Passover. So this period of 50 days seems to have been the period beginning between the beginning of the barley harvest and the end of the wheat harvest. They're both spring crops. They're harvested in the spring. And again, here again, the scripture specifies that a pilgrimage needed to be made to the place where the Lord God chooses to celebrate this feast. So the feast of first fruits or feast of weeks are celebrations of the harvest, reminding God's people of the goodness of the land into which he had finally brought them. Each of these feasts was celebrated by refraining from the usual work of the day, by assembling together in fellowship and by eating a festive meal of meat, grain, and wine that had been ritually offered to God. These special sacrificial offerings renewed fellowship between a holy God and a sinful people, expressing the covenant relationship between them. Because of God's goodness, these days were to be celebrated with great joy by everyone living in the land, including men and women, boys, girls, servants, widows, orphans, even foreigners. Everyone was to be invited to this feast. 
And then the third feast, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles or Ingathering, you could say all of those, was celebrated in the autumn when all the produce had been gathered in. And I can say growing up in a farming community, we did have an in-gathering service, usually around Thanksgiving because the farmers had harvested and they were giving offerings for the blessing the Lord had provided in just the abundance of the crop. So that's kind of interesting. At that time, growing up, I had no idea it had anything to do with the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. But this feast was tied to the possession of the land as the land's ability to produce is a gift from God. At these agriculturally significant times, Israel's to be reminded that all these gifts come from God. Again, for this feast, there was a pilgrimage made to the place where the Lord God chooses. And it's to be made again with everyone in attendance with a time of rejoicing and great joy to celebrate the blessings of the Lord. Every element of life, whether social or agricultural, is to be lived out in God's presence because he is the source and goal of everything they do. The law comes from God, but through obedience, Israel will move closer to him. Obedience to the law is something God required of his people, not just so they have something to do or for us a list to check off, but it was given so that they could have a proper relationship with him. So these feasts were celebrated by the Israelite people under the Mosaic Covenant. But what about now? What about us who are under the New Covenant? Is there any significance of these feasts and celebrations? And I always said there was somewhat that as growing up we had in-gathering so it's a, a feast and thanksgiving to the Lord. But what about the rest? As we've already noted, Passover is probably more familiar to us as it occurs around when we celebrate Easter. On that first Passover, a lamb was sacrificed and the blood shed to atone for the sins of the people. And we know the crucifixion of Jesus coincided with the celebration of Passover. The meal in the upper room before the crucifixion is recorded as the Last Supper or a Passover meal. And this meal is still commemorated by us today, right? When we have the Lord's Supper or what we may call communion. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5-7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And in Hebrews 9-22 it says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So the Passover was to foreshadow what was yet to come, the perfect sacrifice and the fulfillment of the law through Jesus. That's the significance to us. Jesus paid the debt for my sin. He paid the debt by shedding his own blood once and for all time. And the Feast of Weeks, or as we call it, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, was to commemorate the first fruits of harvest. It was to symbolize 
what was to come. In Acts 2, we read about Pentecost, where the apostles and the disciples were gathered together in the upper room and were filled with the Holy Spirit, a symbol of what yet was to come to the new believers. And better yet, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul refers to the risen Christ as the firstfruits. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection as the firstfruits guarantees the believer in Christ the promise of resurrection with him. So understanding these festivals, memorials recorded in the Old Testament helps us to understand the references made to them in the New Testament and the foreshadowing and the fulfillment of them. But let us once again consider the generosity and the heart of our Lord God, of his grace extended to us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So let us come before him with singing and thanksgiving, not just three times a year, but daily, offering our praises and ourselves in service to him. Every aspect of our life is to reflect that we belong to the Lord and are sustained by his hand. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are so generous. I thank you for your word that you teach us and that you provide all these foreshadowings. Thank you, Jesus, that you came sacrificed yourself for us to redeem us and thank you that you bless us over and over and over again we praise you for everything that you do in Jesus name I pray amen you are dismissed <laughs>